Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast via the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, and streamed live via the 3CR website. Welcome to Freedom of Species. My name's Kate Gracie, and today I've got two good people with me in the studio Joshua Griffiths is a wildlife ecologist who's, and who's the founder of Platypus Spot and he's also with the Victorian Alliance for Platypus Safe Yabby Traps. And we've got Doug Gimishi who's an award-winning conservation photographer and a facilitator for the Victorian Alliance. Welcome on the show, Josh. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. And welcome back, Doug. Thanks again for having me again. <laughs> now, we're, today we're talking about platypuses, platypus conservation and I've recently learnt this fun fact that platypus don't have stomachs. That I've heard that their esophagus more or less joins up directly with their intestine. Is that true? Um, kind of. They have have quite a simple stomach, so it's not quite as uh, convoluted as as ours. Um, yeah, so they 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 eat quite high energy stuff to provide their um, their sustenance. And I also learnt that to suckle their young. The lactating mother platypus oozes milk um, from their skin into the fur for their babies just to lap up because they don't actually have teats. Is that true? Because that's kind of crazy. Th- that is true. Yeah. Um, obviously, being a mammal, they one of their key features is that they they lactate to feed their young. And um, but yeah, they don't have nipples, so they have special patches of skin on their abdomen where um, the young platypus will stimulate. Um, it stimulates the the milk to be secreted by the mother, and then they just kind of lap it up from the from the fur. That's great. I love it. Um, now, we, do, we digress. Um, I really want to hear about your work with the Victorian Alliance to prevent platypus dying in enclosed yabby traps, such as the opera house nets. You know, there's such pointless and preventable deaths that are occurring maybe on a, on a daily basis. But first, just can you give us sort of some broad brushstrokes about the platypus? Can you tell us about how the species is, is faring these days? I mean, they're so elusive that I imagine... Many people haven't even seen one in the wild, let alone know much about them. So how is their population and distribution going? Yeah, thanks. Um, and I think you, you've hit on one of the key things. is They're not easily seen, and so people often don't know where they are. And, and that's one of the key hurdles that we face. So they're currently still quite widespread throughout Australia across the, the eastern seaboard, seaboard um, in a wide range of aquatic habitats. Um, but within that distribution, and it's from northern Queensland down through Tasmania, Within that distribution, we know there's been a number of declines and even some localised extinctions. So now that sort of large distribution is starting to look a bit like Swiss cheese. And that's a real concern because once these populations, larger populations become fragmented, there's a much higher chance of them of them disappearing rather quickly. So, um, But really, we don't have much information over, over a big scale. Um, they're really difficult 
animals to work with. They're not easily seen, and so gathering that information is a real challenge. What about their protection status right now? So just recently, in the last couple of years, they were upgraded from a species of least concern, um, which was clearly wrong. Um, Now they've been upgraded to near-threatened. And basically, it's in recognition of this growing body of evidence that there are some declines happening and there is some localised extinction, but also the fact that we don't know much about population trends over a large scale. So it's kind of a a halfway measure, I think. Um, And until we get some more information to really understand how populations are going, they will remain there, which means they don't really get any special protection. So you don't think their current, that protection status they've got now is is fair? You don't think it's a good... What Um, what would you give it? What would you give them? uh, Look, I think it varies over their range. There's certainly areas where they're probably doing quite well, um, but there's other areas where they're really struggling. And certainly Victoria is one of the areas where they're under the biggest threat. Um, And and the the millennium drought, you know, a decade of of very dry conditions obviously impacted aquatic species really heavily. And and the platypus was no different. So we've seen some fairly major declines over that time. Right. Now, Doug, what's it like trying to get photos of an animal that's pretty hard to see normally, let alone with a camera? It must be an exercise in excruciating frustration Uh, sometimes. It can be really tough and really easy. Uh, If you go out with a researcher like Josh who uh, captures them to do research and then releases them, you've got um, uh, one sitting there. So a lot of my work is photo documentary, so I'm capturing um, people doing field work and those type of things. But the the other shots... um, are really, really quite quite difficult. Um, there's a place like Elizabeth down near the Otways where they come up, which is just beautiful. I've, I uh, ha- I've canoed there to look yeah. at platypuses, and it's magnificent. It's so the, the surface shots are quite easy there, but um, my next challenge is to get one swimming under the water in the wild. I mean, you can go to the zoo and do it, or you can go to places where they're held, but uh, no one's actually got one in the wild, a decent... Um, movement photo of it under so haven't got that yet does that mean you have to go under with an underwater you're diving yeah i've i've uh, um secured a a mate of mine who's one of the top underwater photographers in the world to to help me out and he's coming down in in january and we're going to try and uh, see what we can do but um don't hold your breath it's (laughs) figuratively and literally yes yes (laughs) but um right wow so so if you're going underwater to take photos of animals and i Imagine the water's probably it's not going to be crystal clear. Mm. How how are you going to apply all your good photography principles? Um, it, it, there's a there's a photography technique known as um, fishing, whereas you set your camera up, and you can do it for anything. You can do it for street photography, where you set up the scene you want, and you hope a person goes past or a platypus goes past. So we'll probably set something up in the water where we believe platypuses are transiting. Uh, we'll set up the flashes. We'll get everything just right. And then we may do a trigger sensor or um, a remote trigger or might just sit there. I mean, there was a, a great wildlife photographer of the year photo um, that made the top 100 a couple of years ago of a uh, beaver building its nest. And the guy spent a year, in not fully in the water, but trying to get that. So you know, I don't intend to spend that long, but um, yeah, you, you do what's called fishing and you hope uh, you set everything up and then hope it comes past. Yeah, wow. So you've... I guess you've blocked out some time in your diary for that. Two weeks at least of right. every day for eight hours a day. And we'll to get one great shot. To get a shot. Yeah. I'll let you know if it's great. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Wow, that's commitment. Now, I understand we stopped hunting platypus for their pelts early last century. So, you know, that's one good thing that they don't have to contend with anymore. But it seems they've got plenty more threats that they have to deal with. Um, can you can you talk us through what those what these current array of threats are? 
Sure. And I, I should say that aquatic ecosystems are one of the most threatened in the world. Um, so living in those systems, particularly in a place like Australia, which is largely a desert, um, poses a number of threats to these species. And I guess one of the big things is just the reliability and the availability of water. Water is becoming such a, a, a scarce and precious resource around the world, um, puts them in competition with humans for that resource. And unfortunately, not many animals win that battle. So um, there's certainly big issues with us taking water out of systems. When we have a shower, that water comes directly from the habitat of platypuses. Um, we build big dams, which completely changes the, the characteristics and the flow regimes. Um, in urban areas where I spend a lot of my time, you know, looking for platypuses in Melbourne, um, those flow regimes become very, we call it flashy. So after a bit of rain, you get really high flows and then it drops back down to virtually nothing again. And that's a, a big threat for urban systems. So I guess that um, availability and, and the change in flow regimes is probably one of the, the biggest threats. And of course, that's likely to change under future climate change scenarios. Um, and then the other thing is they're really reliant on vegetation on the banks of, of rivers. And I think a lot of people miss that because they think these species live in the water, but that vegetation around the banks provides a lot of food and habitat for the bugs that they eat. It shades the water so it stops those extremes of temperature. And probably one of the critical things it does is it holds the banks together so you don't get erosion and so the platypus can construct burrows in the banks, um, which they require. It's one of their critical resources. And then some of the other things that they face on a more local scale are, are things like pollutants, um, you know, predation from, from dogs and foxes, and also being entangled in things like litter and fishing equipment, and as you mentioned before, drowning in enclosed yabby traps. When you talk can about... I add, can I add one? That, yeah, um, do. Sort of, there's a little girl's hair ties and, and rubber bands. Well, what do um, little girl's hair ties Josh, do? But yeah, look, it, it's one of these things that people don't really think twice about, but I, I capture animals virtually every year that have things like hair ties, rubber bands, bracelets caught around their neck. Um, these things accumulate in waterways really well. They get blown in and they washed in from a long way away. Once they're in that waterway, they just get washed downstream so they don't come out again. And the way platypuses forage is that they use their bill and they, they sort of snuffle through the, the bottom of the, of the creek. So it's really easy for any sort of enclosed items to get over their, over their neck. Once it's on there, it doesn't come off and it just becomes tighter and it rubs. And I've seen some fairly horrific injuries from things like a hair tie. Right. And, and they certainly can be fatal. Do they include those uh, the ring the, the ring things the for beers. beers for beers? Yeah, thankfully we don't see those too much anymore. I think that was that was a big campaign back in the eighties around uh, dolphins and those That's and right. um, and turtles. Yeah, and turtles. Um, they're starting to make a bit of a comeback. I think a lot of beers are being made in in cans again now, but um, we don't tend to see them too much. But certainly they're, they're a risk. I mean, anything that forms an enclosed ring can get caught around platypuses um, and, and any other wildlife as well. When you talked about um, predation from from dogs and foxes. How well can they defend themselves? Because I understand they've got venomous um, spurs of a kind on their on their front feet or their back feet. They do. It's one of the really unique things about platypuses. They're one of the, the few venomous mammals in the world. And yeah, the adult males have these big venomous spurs on their on their back um, on their back legs. Um, they're not really used for defence. They're more used for competition with other males during uh-huh. breeding season. Um, having said that, there is the, a story from quite a long time ago around um, apparently an adult male has enough venom to kill a large dog. Now, I don't know how that was discovered, but um, it, it's quite a toxic venom they've got. Um, Does it kill each other when they're fighting? They don't tend to. I, I believe it's happened in captivity before, but I think that's because the other male hasn't been able to get away. 
Um, right. I think what happens in the wild is that one sort of beats the other one up and the loser sort of goes back to his burrow and feels a bit sore and sorry for himself for a while. Um, but I think it seems to have a, a much bigger effect on, on humans and, and other animals than it does on themselves. So they might have a little bit of sort of tolerance of their own venom. Right. Is there such a thing as antivenine for, for platypuses if you're handling the, one and you get... You there isn't. Um, I think people getting spurred by platypuses is such a rare event that no one's bothered to, <laughs> right. to produce an antivenine. <laughs> Um, but one of the scary things is it causes excruciating pain and massive swelling in humans and things like morphine and all our opiates just have no effect whatsoever. So the only way to really treat it is they put sort of nerve blockers in and just kill the whole limb until the pain goes away and that can be, that can be weeks. Right. There was a case of six months, I think, I read, of someone in pain for six months. Yeah. Six months? Yeah. Wow. And even after years, not getting back full mobility back into their, into their limbs, so... Wow, but it's, it's such a rare occasion, and um, I think as as researchers, as soon as you're aware of it, it it's um, it adds a little bit of a challenge. But um, they're, they're quite easy to avoid if you know how to handle them properly. So I think it tends to be, you know, maybe if uh, someone finds a sick or injured platypus, they might pick them up, and you know, for their for their um, consideration, they end up in hospital. Yeah, which which is an interesting thing because I know uh, Kate, you and I were um, emailing last night about photographs of, of platypuses, and you'll you'll sometimes see photographs of a researcher holding a platypus by the tail, putting it back in the water or taking it out. Um, a, it doesn't seem to bother it, but secondly, that is really the only safe way to yeah. pick up a, a male platypus. Yeah. So um, um, it's, it's not cruel, it's, it's safety for the, uh, yeah. for the researcher. Yeah. yeah, I have had some comments on Facebook because we do tend to publicise our, yeah. our activities a bit and make people aware about what we're doing and where platypuses are. And I have had some people have a go at me for picking them up by the tail, yeah. but um, I assure you that's the correct way and it, yeah. it doesn't harm them at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was um, having an issue with... Um, photos that that Doug was sending me last night because they were they were it was a photo of you suspending it looked like you were just suspending a platypus over the water and and I was just like I'm sure the platypus doesn't like that I'm sure it's the safest way for you to handle it but I'm sure the platypus isn't having a good time (laughs) Josh was putting it back in the water but um, yeah I don't think he was I didn't think he was actually dangling it it just for the sheer fun of it Mm. but you know it just sort of you know the message was like absolutely I was thinking I'm sure the platypus, if he had a say in this, would rather not. But hey. Yeah, and I've worked with a number of different animals, and quite a few of them you do actually hold by the tail. Yeah. Um, they're quite robust, and um, it's not like a dog's tail, yeah. but um, things like kangaroos and, and that you can pick up by yeah. the tail quite easily. Now, um, you were talking about climate change before we started talking about predation, but, um, you know, I, I guess climate change does present very significant threats to. To platypus as it as it does to us, you know, which is understatement of the day. But how is um, climate change specifically expected to impact platypus? Yeah, and I guess it's you know with any of these things, it's really difficult to predict in a in a complex ecosystem. But I mean, I think everyone agrees that under climate change scenarios, we're going to be getting less rainfall. It's going to become a lot more patchy, and so that means that our, our waterways are receiving less water. So. Yeah they're going to become, some of these nice, healthy, flowing rivers are going to become intermittent, which means they will stop flowing for part of the year. Um, There's also things like um, the water changing, and it might only change temperature by half a degree, but that's going to impact a lot of the invertebrates quite significantly. So, you know, it impacts their food supply. Um, But what we do know is um, once waterways become intermittent, I mean, platypuses require water to live permanently. So as soon as that waterway dries up or stops flowing, um, they will move on. They so need flowing water. They don't fun. necessarily need flowing water, but they do need, um, I guess, I guess permanent water. So intermittent waterways that tend to have refuge pools, um, provided it doesn't 
stop flowing for too long. They can hang out in those refuge pools until we get some more rainfall when it keeps going. But um, some of the, I mean, some of the waterways that I've worked in in Melbourne for eight years now, and I've noticed them, you know, stop flowing for much longer periods just in that time frame. Well, um, you mean the existing climate change that's occurring now? Yeah, and and also, I mean, it's in combination with us taking water out yeah, for right. irrigation and our own use and industrial uses and things like that. So. We, I guess, our impacts make climate change worse. Yeah, exactly. Now, let's just talk about your um, citizen science initiative. Can you just tell us what citizen science is in general terms? And, and how can people who know virtually nothing about wildlife and ecology, how can they possibly make any meaningful contribution to a conservation project? Yeah, it's something that we're very strong on. I think um, increasingly we're becoming more and more disconnected from our environment. Our, our population becomes more urbanised and so we don't really understand what goes on in the environment. And so it's really hard to make people care about conservation when they don't really know. So I think the advent of citizen science probably over the last five to ten years has been a, a really significant movement. It also provides some really good information for, for scientists. So I guess what it is, it's about... Um, the general public being involved in either collecting data or analysing data or running experiments that can then be used by researchers. So what we have with um, our, our citizen science platform called Platypus Spot, it's about trying to gather sightings. People, There's a lot of people out there, fishermen, kayakers, people that go camping that are around waterways that you know might just see a platypus once in their lifetime. If we can gather enough of that information into one location it actually becomes useful so every sighting that we get is is important right. and, and like we said before it's about we don't have enough information about platypus populations across Australia so this is a way that we can generate that and you know get the 21 million people in Australia getting out there looking for, for platypuses. So how long has platypus spot been up and running? Um, it's been the website's been running for I think about three years now uh, last year we were lucky enough to receive a bit of funding to develop it into an app and that's been um, live now for about 12 months, and that's significantly improved the number of sightings we get. It's, it becomes really simple for people to just quickly hit a few buttons on their phone and, and submit a sighting. So I think in the last 12 months we've had over 400 sightings, which has been um, fantastic, and from across Australia. So you don't need any knowledge whatsoever about platypus. It could be your first sighting, and you can just log it on this website or on this app. Absolutely. Fantastic. And I think one, one of the things we, we do find is that... Um, there's uh, you get Rakalian waterways as well, which is our native water rat. Um, amazing creature, but when they're swimming in the water, they can look very similar to platypuses. <laughs> and I think people see a, a fairy thing in the water and, and assume it's a platypus. And I'm and I'm sure we do get some sightings that that are actually of water rats. But that doesn't matter with citizen science. It becomes self-confirming if you get enough people um, submitting sightings, even if one's false. If you get 20 others in that area um, it suddenly confirms itself so that's what we're trying to do it's, it's really it's a numbers game um, when it comes to citizen science so we can all join in absolutely much. yep and, and all the data is uh, you can see the the maps of where people have seen stuff you can uh, put in photos you can comment on other people's um, photos as well so you can actually if you're interested to know if there's platypuses in your area you can just go on there have a look at the map and, and see if people have seen them in your area oh that's great so how can you download it? Is it I assume it's free you can just download yep. this app for free definitely it's a free app it's on um, you know Apple and Android uh -huh. um, so it's just yeah platypus spot or one word um, search for that and, and it should come up okay, coming back to your last question of photographing them i use it um I, there was a um a whole lot of platypus that are common in templestowe and but you know when i saw four or five sightings in two or three days there i went great i can go there and 
take some photos because the odds are higher. Yeah, as well. great resource for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and I is. should say, even though Doug was saying how difficult they are to photograph, we've had some amazing photographs on the on the website from um, you know sometimes people just with their phones, but uh, I think yeah. also a lot of people spending a lot of time around waterways and trying to get a photo. So um, yeah, it's been great. Have there, has there been any surprises or good news that have come out this first year of um, platypus? Absolutely, we, we get we get sightings in areas where we have either assumed they didn't exist or just didn't have any previous information. And some of those sightings are ones that I, I mean, I try to chase up all sightings and just sort of thank people for submitting them. Um, it gets harder the more popular yeah. it gets, of course. But um, but some of those unusual ones where, you know, we suspect it might be a false sighting or maybe someone's put a marker on the on the map wrong, I'll follow up with people. And, um, you know, often they're, they're really convinced. And, you know, it's... Um, it's not unusual to see platypuses turn up in strange areas. Um, I guess it's important for us to understand, is it just a transient animal passing through? Is it a, maybe a dispersing juvenile that's looking for a new home? Um, or is it actually a resident population that's got back there? And that's where, you know, if we can get more sightings, that helps us confirm that they're there permanently. Yeah, great. Well, one, of the, one of the things on distribution that really um, jumped out to me, there's a, a lady doing a PhD um, up in the University of New South Wales, and she'd done some um, historical research on sightings uh, registered in newspapers. And in uh, Princess Bridge down in Melbourne, it was reported in the newspaper just in one day in 1911 or 1913 that 22 platypuses were caught, not sighted, caught. So that's that was their distribution there. Deliberately caught. Deliberately caught, but there were 22 in one wow. day, enough wow. to be caught. I don't think anyone's seen a platypus near Princess Bridge in the last 20 years. They've not- they wiped out the colony. Yeah. Not confirmed anyway. I do have a couple on the map from around that area, but I, I suspect they're false ones. We do get them down to about uh, Dites Falls fairly mm. regularly, but beyond there, it's, um, yeah, there doesn't seem to be any permanent animals there anyway. Right. But yeah, it, d- it does sort of indicate that th- those are the sort of little bits of data that we've got to work with in terms of historical distribution and declines. Um, but, you know, we don't have a lot of data from 1911. It's, uh, you know, those little anecdotes that show up in, in newspapers and it's, it's really hard to, um, you know, how much weight do you, do you put on those? Yeah, sure. Now, they, um, the eDNA development that I was reading about sounds amazing. You know, that there's, there's the, a platypus leaves a kind of genetic fingerprint in water so you can ascertain whether one's been there recently just by testing a water sample. And that must be a bit of a game changer for wildlife monitoring programs. It's, it's incredibly exciting. I've, I've now worked with platypuses for, for 10 years. Um, they're incredibly difficult to catch. They're long, cold nights. Often you don't catch anything. Um, and so the, the advent of eDNA, and maybe just to give listeners a, an idea, so what eDNA, it stands for environmental DNA, where we're all shedding genetic material into our environment. Um, so we're shedding skin cells, hair um, fish secrete mucus, um, things that live in the water, there's urine and feces, that all contains cells and, and genetic material. And now our genetic techniques and our computer power is, is just growing exponentially. So now we've got the ability to actually detect these trace amounts of DNA. So I can go out and take a water sample, um, send it back to the lab, they put it through a really fine filter, extract all the cellular material in the DNA, and then using a, a specific probe for platypus DNA. So we'll, we'll create a, a probe that has a sequence of DNA that is only found in platypuses. We can then screen that sample to see whether platypuses are there or not. And we can do that with a variety of different species. Basically, anything that lives in waterways or around waterways, we can potentially pick up. So you mean potentially, has it, have those ones been developed yet or are they yet to be developed? But you know that they can be. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we've worked on, I think we're up to 
30 or 40 diff- unique species now wow. from, from fish to frogs to um, invasive newts, uh, all kinds of different things. But um, I think what's becoming a game changer now is we don't actually look for specific species. We can look for whole groups of species. So we develop general fish markers to look at all the fish in the waterway. Or we've even been doing some work with just general vertebrates. And we've been picking up things like, well, humans for start, but, uh, but deer, um, you know, birds nesting in trees above the waterways, um, stock that might have, you know, been into the waterways as well. So it's incredibly powerful um, and, it, and it, it's certainly a game changer for something like platypuses where we just haven't been able to get distributional data, at least, in, you know, uh, systematic distributional data over a, a large scale. So now we can actually implement that at, um, you know, a statewide or even an Australia-wide scale. That's, that's awesome. Um, is it something that you can end up testing for routinely with all freshwater sa- sampling or is it a bit sort of cost prohibitive? Uh, no, well, in, in terms of, in terms of uh, comparing it to, say, traditional sampling, so we've done some modelling with, with our platypus data looking at what it costs to do the DNA sampling versus me going out and catching them and, and it's an order of magnitude less expensive. Um, you don't obviously you don't get the data that you would do if you've got an animal in your hand in terms of sexes and age and and um, you know weights things like that. But in terms of just saying are they there or not, um, it's it's incredibly sensitive, which is one of the good things. So you can pick them up at really low abundance um, and incredibly cost efficient. So that's what makes it really exciting to be able to do things over a large scale. It's great. Let's um let's ponder those profound implications of eDNA testing with a uh, with a song suggested by. Doug. That was Brian Ferry, Oh Yeah. That's the name of the song. That wasn't my own exclamation. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR and we've got Joshua Griffiths and Doug Gimishi here standing up for the lovely platypus. Now, let's get to the Victorian Alliance for Platypus Safe Yabby Traps. What is an enclosed yabby trap and why is it such a big deal for the platypus? Yeah, so every year we hear about um, platypuses drowning in, in these traps. Basically, they're, they're, they're traps that are used to catch yabbies and, and small crayfish um, throughout waterways in, in, in Victoria and, and across Australia. And unfortunately, these platypuses eat things like yabbies. So they're, they're fully submerged nets. Um, if a yabby goes into it, platypus goes in to eat that yabby, can't get out and, and drowns within a couple of minutes. So um, it's one of these threats that we've, we've spoken about before that's putting um, pressure on, on localised populations and in, um, in combination with all those other threatening processes that we've talked about is, um, is you know, driving declines and, and localised extinctions of platypuses. Right. Doug, you've seen firsthand the impact of yabby traps on platypus. Mm-hmm. Tell us. Oh, look, it's horrific. I think uh, any air-breathing mammal that drowns and you see them trying to struggle and get out. I mean, some of my photos... Uh, uh, that I've seen um, and, and taken of platypus trying to squeeze their head through this hole that is um, only a one-way opening. And uh, you look at something like that and because of that, it sort of really pushed my buttons and I know a lot of other people were concerned. So we, we decided to set up a working group which was called the Victorian Alliance for Platypus Safety Abbey Traps to try and get some things changed because, you know, for us, it, it's a it's an animal welfare issue, um, uh, mainly, but also it's a um, conservation issue as well when we start seeing these localised extinctions caused by what Josh was talking about, but also uh, um, yabby traps. We had a, an instance in um, Labatouche, or near Labatouche, where five platypus were caught in two enclosed 
Yabby traps, and you know, some people suggested that could have been half the river's population. And these things do what's known as ghost fish. So unlike, say, a steel-drawed trap that fires off once and captures one animal, uh, enclosed yabby traps, such as opera house nets, can continue to fish and kill platypus for years. So there was one with three in there and one with two, and I think, Josh, somewhere up at um, Hall's Gap or somewhere, there was one once found with 12 platypus skeletons. Bloody hell. Yeah, and this is part of the problem because people, I mean, they're they're so widely and cheaply available and and people go out camping and and may not know the regulations and and put them in the water and then forget about them or leave without them and they just sit there for months. Mm. Or years. Yeah, or or years. They will just continue to to Mm. catch and drown animals. Mm. And it's not just platypuses. We find um, rikali, turtles, um, even some water birds have been stuck in them as well. Horrible. I understand that. Enclosed yabby traps are banned from use in public waters, but clearly that's that's insu- an insufficient um, regulation in preventing platypus deaths. But what really confounds me is that, that while they've been identified as a serious problem, all they achieve is catching yabbies for recreational fishermen. So, I mean, why the hell haven't they been legislated against? It seems like such a, a no-brainer, and, I mean, surely yabby catchers aren't a, the latest powerful lobby group. Tell, no, me, tell me they're not. <laughs> no, look, I think most people are, you know, good people and they, they probably don't realise. Uh, I think a lot of people who put these yabby traps, enclosed yabby traps into the water, they, as Josh was talking before, the platypus are so elusive they might never have seen a platypus there and even if they knew they could catch platypus, they'd probably go, look, I've never seen one there and none here. But, of course, we know there are. Um, I think that um, people don't know a lot of the regulations as well, um, a little bit fuzzy. It talks about it's illegal to use in public waterways, but not in private waterways. But what if you have a river running through your property? Is that mm. a public or is that a private? Um, things like that. Um, I think there's a there's an education issue as well, but I think there's also a desire. But the, we've been dealing with the um, government, and uh, they're listening. And I think it, it does sound like a no-brainer that for to catch a few recreational yabbies, you'd risk drowning. A platypus or or, mm. some, or something else and, does seem a little bit crazy. And I'll just jump in there. I mean, I think one of the things that, that hits home with me is that we don't want to stop people catching yabbies. Um, why there not? Are, there are other alternative nets why not, to use. Why, why not stop them catching yabbies and then create a greater food source for the platypus? Well, Wouldn't that I, be a win-win? I think that's another issue. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think if people use their waterways responsively, it, it puts value on those waterways and people look after them more. So I think there is value in people responsibly using waterways, um, whether that's fishing, yabbying, camping, whatever it is. Um, but there's safe alternatives to use if you want to go out and catch yourself a feed of yabbies. Um, you know, these enclosed yabby traps just cause more trouble than they're worth. And I think the, the confusion around regulations and the lack of communication of regulations is, um, is one of the big problems, like Doug was mentioning. What, what are the current regs and the penalties for, regarding these traps and, and how are they enforced? Are they enforced? Well, current regulations are they're not meant to be used in public waterways. Um, all, all yabby traps? All enclosed yabby traps. Okay, yep. Are pretty, I'm generalising the okay. regulations are a little bit more complicated yep. than that. Uh, one of the challenges is that um, for enforcement is um, enforcement agencies uh, get stripped of personnel and if you think any, any public waterway, they're so vast mm. in, in Victoria and everywhere else that to enforce where a yabby trap's been put and has been put underwater, so sometimes hard to see. It's really, really hard. I mean, I, my understanding is most uh, people become aware once one uh, platypus has been caught and drowned or some other animal. So it's really hard, yeah. hard to enforce. But uh, DELP are doing a publicity campaign 
um, this summer uh, to get people more aware of uh, where they should be used, where they shouldn't be used, um, asking people to call in. Uh, Peter are going to be offering a reward for anyone who reports and is successfully prosecuted for um, causing the death of a platypus illegally as well. And I think the fine by DELP for is if it's used illegally is something like $36,000 as well. But the it's hard thing is, hit. yeah. The hard yeah. thing is, though, these these um, enclosed yabby traps, such as op- such as opera house nets, are put in the water and left there for a day or two or three. So you would have to have an enforcement officer there when the person came mm. back. You know, if the yeah. person came back, started pulling it out, and, a, and, a, and an enforcement officer was there, the person could easily go, "Look, it's not mine. I saw yeah, it was sure. there. I know mm. it's illegal. I'm just pulling it out to do the right thing." Yeah, it's a tricky one. No, no one puts their yeah. name on it. And, yeah. and I think if people start getting a bit worried that they're going to get caught that's when they'll just leave them in the water because these things are so cheap that there's no value placed on them so they'll just leave them in the water and and that just, um, you know, multiplies the problem. $20 for four. Wow, five bucks Or four for $20, I should say. Yeah, it's cheap, cheapest. Yeah, and I think the fact that they are so cheap and widely available in virtually every camping hardware store um, that, you know, mum and dad take the kids out for camping holiday over summers, there's no information about regulations on these nets or the problems that they cause. Mm. Mm. And so how are people supposed to know that they are illegal when they're they're sold next to their tents and sleeping bags? Or or even on top of that, not only illegal, if you use them legally, you can still be drowning platypus and Mm. and the risks because they, they... called yabby traps they're not called yabby traps brackets platypus drowning mm. ricali drowning other wildlife drowning indiscriminate yeah. death indiscriminate traps. death yeah. indiscriminate death traps yeah not, not so catchy yeah no. so you know as an alliance we've been really lucky we've we've got uh, this working group together that has people like delp and melbourne water yarra river keepers um where we river keepers yarra range council who are all working on it but also other people are going to support us as well like rspca um um, Animals Australia, Australian Conservation Foundation, because it is it is pretty much of a no-brainer when you think, look, there are ways to, mm. if you want to catch, capture yabbies, I know a lot of people don't, um, but if you want to, you can do it safely and easily without drowning air-breathing mammals yep. and, and other things or lazily and cause perpetual death traps. So can we point the finger at some stores that stock it and that we need to, do we, do we boycott them or what do we do? What do we do with these stores that you, do we name and shame them? Ah, uh, look... That is a good question. I, I, I have sort of two views. I think um, my view is with all conservation or, or ethical issues is that every time we open our wallet or purse, we are saying continue to do what you do. We support it. So even if it's not buying um, the, the opera house net, if you go into a store that sells these um, and you purchase something else, you're saying, look, I'm going to support your business. Mm. So And I, I think that's for everything. So, you know, my thing is... Um, don't go into places, don't pull out your wallet, don't formally support it even if you wouldn't buy the, the Abbey Trap. And you, look, you can jump online and, and find out where they are, but the, you know, the biggies are things like, and you know, this is public knowledge, you know, BCF, Boating, Camping and Fishing, they sell Opera House Nets online, Anaconda, Aussie Disposals, Angler's Warehouse, Fishing Wholesaler, um, Kmart. I mean, one thing I'd, I'd say recently, and hats off to them, Big W took the sales off, um, offline for uh, enclosed yabby traps such as opera house nets, which is fantastic. So when you say well. they take them offline, but that, does it mean they're, that they're still there in the store? Well, they're not available in Victoria, and I can only speak on behalf of okay. Victoria, but, you know, they were contacted and uh, they said, look, we recognise um, there's some state issues, but we're taking the sales offline, and that's oh, yeah. that's fantastic. So I think... Um, yeah. You know, they've, they've shown leadership in that. Um, I would like others to do that, and I think um, you know, we've asked them, we're contacting them, but having said that, what we can do, the, what the listeners can do is 
when you pull out your wallet or purse, decide where you shop and shop in those places that support the values that mm. you support and don't shop where you don't and tell other people to do the same, regardless of the issue. And, and I think it'd be great if some of those, you know, the, the big retailers did show some corporate responsibilities. I mean, if they're, you know, once we make them aware of that, that if they were to voluntarily withdraw them, then, you know, we can... You know that they can get a lot of uh, a lot of good publicity around that. So yeah, yeah. you know it's uh, it's about them you know being good citizens, I guess, and um, and and making a, a voluntary stance rather than just going, look, we're obeying regulations. Um, mm. You know, I think there's a there's an opportunity for them to, to sort of t- show some leadership. Yeah, and uh, they're they're aware they've been written to. Um, most of them I can't say all of those who I named are, are aware, but you know, all all the big ones they're they're aware they've been contacted saying that these can cause platypus drownings. Uh, as well, and there are alternatives available as well that they can sell um, as well. Josh is more of an expert on the alternatives, so I'll pitch to Josh. Yeah, so well, there's a couple that are already available: the uh, the drop hoop nets, and there's uh, an open top pyramid net that are, uh, um, are should be completely safe. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm saying. We, we don't want to stop people catching a yabby if they want to. Um, but yeah, just I use. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I know. I'm, I'm, I know. That, I know there are a lot of vegetarians, and, and and fully respect that. But you know, for me, it's the collateral yeah. death. Drowning yeah. as, as, yeah. as well, I mean, very yeah. much. Is that horrible thought of, uh, particularly this time of year, which is when they tend to be used? It's the summer holidays. It's also breeding season for mm. platypuses. So you know, ma- mother platypuses has young in a burrow at the moment. She leaves to go foraging and may not make it make it back mm. because she drowns horribly in these nets. And so not only does she die, but then her young in the burrow slowly starts death an, as well. Which is another generation yeah. um, gone whilst they're already under threat yeah. as well. So you know, they, these are a threatening process. As well, and we're we're um, uh, be working with the government to get them listed as a threatening process. We're uh, working or we're having conversations with the government to get them banned, um, their sale, ownership, use, everything banned in Victoria. It's it's a Victorian focus at the moment. Um, however, I know uh, across Australia, people are uh, are looking at it as well. And again, because they're a really simple, um, effective, if you want a yabby trap, um, alternative such as um, drop nets or hoop nets. Yeah, so, right. so can we celebrate the the, the stores that have banned them? You said Big W's Well, Big them? W, I have taken them off off selling them online. Are there any specialist fishing stores or camping stores that mm. we that we can go to to buy our... Other stuff. Other stuff that we know that they don't sell? Not that I'm aware of. Oh, but what I would do damn. is I would... My, my opening gambit would be when I... Because I do have to buy stuff for... At, I'm an outdoor photographer. I'll walk yeah. in and say, do you sell enclosed yabby traps such as opera house nets? And when they go, yes, I ex- politely explain the situation and then leave. So I'm yeah. not buying from you. Okay. So, and you know, I think if everyone listening could a do that and tell three people about the yeah. issue, yeah. no bugger it, make it five people about the <laughs> issue and tell them to do the same. That will have an impact. Yeah, and and I think that that the awareness and education really is key because it's not like people want to drown platypus. I cannot think of anyone that would mm. want this to happen. Um, so really, it is. It's just a it's just an awareness thing. So. You know, especially coming up to summer holidays, we really want people to think about their choices and, um, and yeah, just be aware that this is an issue and, yeah, choose safe alternatives. Okay. Now, um, let's say I'm just walking along the creek with my dog, taking my dog for a walk, and I want to, I want to get rid of enclosed yabby traps. What do I look out for? What are the telltale signs that there's yabby traps in the water? Is, it, is there some clues to look yeah, for? Yeah, that can be really difficult because they are a fully submerged net, um, which is what causes the problem. But um, there's always going to be a, a line running to shore. So often there might be a, a stick 
jammed into the bank or something tied to the the base of a tree. Okay. Um, you know, often a, a blue or green um, little braided rope. Okay. If you do see that, uh, I think sometimes people are a little bit reluctant to mess with people's gear, but these things are illegal. You are certainly within your right to to grab them. Um, and I guess if you do pull it up and it happens to be a hoop net, you can just throw it straight back. But um, yeah, you, you are certainly within your rights to, to grab them. Um, and would destroy it. Destroy it. Um, and certainly let, in Victoria, let um, uh, fisheries know. So there's a hotline, 13FISH. And that sort of that information goes back to DELP so they can identify hotspots and, and try to direct enforcement. Mm. Um, what are the hotspots? Are there particular hotspots around? Yeah, I mean, certainly where we found the, the five uh, earlier this year out in, uh, out in Gippsland seems yeah, to be right, a big okay. hotspot. Yep. Um, that's probably the, the nearest one to here. Um, but even up in, up in the high country, there was another three that we found drowned up there up near... Um, okay. Bogong, was it? Bogong. Bogong, it. Bogong. I think um, just, much, much just, in Melbourne. Do you get much in Melbourne? We do sort of in, in the upper Yarra. Um, okay. I, I certainly find a few up there. Um, and, it, and it's one of the platypus hotspots around Melbourne. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's doubly dangerous. Up around Warburton, I was having a chat to a lady and they, they sort of raft down because they find a lot up, up around Warburton uh, in summer yep. uh, as well. Um, but I was going to add to Josh, it's, it's an interesting one about removing them or not. I know that uh, some uh, enforcement officers have said if you leave them and call us, straight away then that increases the chance of prosecution mm. and so there's that double-edged sword of do you if safe to do so do you take a a, a trap out um they, they are meant to respond um, my understanding is within 24 hours but but, but so that's that's the challenge yeah. but I, 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 no one has been successfully prosecuted in victoria yeah, right. um as far as i understand ever i guaranteed for the last 10 years for having used these illegally so it would be nice to see someone get a $36,000, I think it is, $36,000 fine. It is, it is really difficult to prosecute. As you said, people can just Not claim, claim disownership. Um, mm. So, yeah, if you are in that dilemma, please pull them out of the water. Which yes. is why you know, current regulations don't work. Even, yeah. even um, making them um, illegal in public, we need to make the ownership of them illegal, not only the sale and the use, but the ownership, like we did with mm. um, steel jaw traps or um, glue traps. How about the manufacturer of them? Go straight to the source. Well, a lot of them come from overseas okay. as well. There is a Melbourne manufacturer um, in Dandenong. Um, you would be able to Google that. Uh, we would like them <laughs> not. To, we would like them not <laughs> to um, continue manufacturing it. But um, a lot of them do come from overseas as well. Okay. And I know DELP work with um, places like eBay that if uh, illegal ones are being brought in, they can contact eBay and eBay um, have to take it offline. So that okay. does work. So if we can get their usage ownership um, and sale banned um that would be a big step and the next thing coming I mean, the great thing that retailers could do and this isn't this would be a no-brainer for me if a retailer said look we'll do a swap out scheme we will give you 30 percent off the platypus safe yabby trap that you want to buy if you bring in your old one yeah, it's win-win. That, that would increase sales because yeah, people are yeah. going to walk into the stores they're going to totally. buy their other stuff they're going to get sales they never would have had i don't know why they're not doing it if it was my business i would i would I would definitely have do a swap out scheme. That? Uh, they has been to some. It has been suggested, and right. um, we're waiting for that to be implemented. Yeah, right. But uh, a swap out scheme would be good business and yeah, good for yeah. platypus. corporate leadership and profit and profit. There well. you go. Yeah. Now, um, Doug, your photographer. What part of the of this whole working group? What part does your photography play in in achieving these objectives? Um, conservation photography can be used. Um, for two reasons. It can be used to show the good and to show the bad. So um, some of my 
platypus photos are cute and so people look at them and go oh they're cute and so that increases empathy and that's a, a motivational driver and then the other side is the horrific photos and, and that's what pushed my buttons they weren't my photos but you just look at it and go you know, this is outrageous this has to change and we've, we've we've seen the power of imagery in a lot of things the uh that awful dead syrian uh, dead um turkish child on the syrian on a dead syrian, syrian child, child on the turkish beach yep. simple photo doesn't have to be brilliant but people go wow we can't do that so um i've um been running um some stories had a, a piece in australian geographic just on platypus in general but part of it is about raising awareness and but the next bit is about um, using those for emotive um, purposes um, no difference to when we used uh, images for uh, Laurie Levy's uh, the duck hunting you, you know have the beautiful duck photos and, and the youngs with the mum and then you have the awful ones that are shot so photography is used for both and I think um, they serve a purpose at different times. What's a good sort of takeaway message for um, you know amateur photographers listening who are who are involved in animal campaigns? Oh, okay. My my one piece would be once you've got a photo, even if, if it's not yours, print hard copies and leave them where um, you think you need to engage with the people. We'd caught up with a, a couple of government departments and uh, some politicians, and it's interesting if you show someone something on your computer or your phone or, or whatever, they'll go, that's fine. But if you literally print them out, make them 6 by 8 not 4 by 6 and leave them... They've got to do something with it. And yeah, I, right. I, I met with a, a senior person two weeks ago and left him the photos. He said, can I keep them? I said, yes. I left them on his desk. And then half an hour later, I got a phone call from his secretary saying, wow, I just saw your photos. And, you know, it's really, really disgusting. And we, we spoke about that. So print them out. I always carry a set in my car. That's and, a great idea. There might have been some tears involved as well, I think. That was a different politician's <laughs> wife. I was at a party and I showed her the photos and got some tears because was, they were awful photos they weren't the cute ones and, yeah, right. and and but hard copies do make a difference they make a huge difference great tip because yeah when it's a digital photo you just turn you turn it off it's gone well you scan i don't know the data for instagram what is it four seconds or something to, to look at a digital photo how long do people you know twitter's what are they yeah, 100 yeah. whatever so people's attention span but if you leave it on a desk they even if they throw it away they have to do something so the engagement time is much much longer no when, different to billboards. When do you when do you choose between a, giving a cute um, one to to encourage empathy, or you give the gruesome one that's that's really confronting? When do you make? How do you make that decision? Sure, good question. Um, I don't have it. I guess um, depends what the issue is as well. I mean, for me, the um, we had a, a piece in the New York Times which was just about the platypus. So it's raising awareness. It wasn't about opera house nets or enclosed yabby traps specifically so you want the nice cute platypus one um uh, this strange geographic piece was uh, about science so you want the good photos but then um abc ran about those being killed in the river and so you might have a cute platypus photo to, to lead so people will get drawn in and go oh right okay this is about platypus and then you'll show the horrific ones of the platypus struggling trying to pull its head through the uh, um through a hole and not succeeding yeah Right. And it's an interesting concept with conservation in general because we get beaten over heads a lot with bad conservation stories and I think it um, it stops people caring as much mm. when you just kind of go, well, it's all, you know, everything's gone to hell, we can't do much. But um, it's really important to convey those good news stories as well mm. and, um, you know, I think that's always the challenge that we, we have with any sort of communications. Right. Now, so what's what's next for um, the Victorian Alliance and, and where can we get more information from this to go forward well we're, we've uh, been a little bit slack well i've been slack actually setting up a facebook page but that'll probably uh, happen in the next week or two i know uh, platypus spots facebook page um uh updates stuff occasionally um I, to do I, with it i think you say being slack is uh 
Um, yeah, I think Doug's been working very hard, but I should say that the Alliance is people giving up their own time. We're all sort of working pretty hard outside of that. So, uh, mm. yeah, things are progressing slowly, but, but getting there. So, 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 so Pl- Platypus Spot for now, but there will be a Facebook page in the next week, which is the Victorian Alliance for Platypus Safe. Yabby traps. The 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 information is pretty pretty simple. I mean, we we uh, the alliance is working to change uh, to get legislation change. Um, we're we're after increased enforcement. And that's all happening. I think the two things are reduced uh, infield usage. So uh, anyone listening, rather than get more information, if any if they know anyone who uses yabby traps, tell them not to use enclosed yabby traps. Yeah. Tell them to tell the people not to use incl- enclosed yabby traps. Change out to the safer open type. Um, if people are buying them, go to those stores that don't sell enclosed mm. yabby traps. And Big W. Big W, yeah, exactly, yeah, okay. and 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 it's um, a big plug for Big W. Well, it is. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, in Victoria, they don't. I uh, don't don't know if they sell um, open yabby traps. To be honest, but um, go to those stores that uh, do the right thing and yeah. don't, and walk out of those ones that don't. Excellent. As far as we're concerned, yeah, good work. All right, let's um, go to another song. This one is another suggestion from Doug. You're tuned to 3CR and listening to Freedom of Species and we've just been chatting with Josh Griffiths and Doug Gimishi about how to protect the platypus. That song just gone was The Madden Brothers with We Are Done. That was another one suggested by Doug. Nice choice. I thought it was kind of relevant. Yeah, sort I'd of. like their, pla- their lines to be done. Yeah, and it, it'll done. all be fixed and, and we are traps. done and we, we, can, we can shut it down. Now, just some time for two community announcements. Um, there's going to be a free screening of the doco, The Ghosts in Our Machine, and that's going to be on the evening of the Thursday the 21st in the Sydney CBD. That's hosted by Films for Change in Sydney. There's Carols with the Penguins next Saturday the 23rd. That's at the Penguin Viewing Area in St Kilda, and it's hosted by Earthcare St Kilda. Details of those two events are on their respective Facebook pages and, and it will eventually make it onto ours as well. So this is the last Freedom of Species show for the year. 3CR is going to go to summer programming through this summer holiday period and we'll be back on deck in late January. I don't know the exact date, sorry, but late January sometime. Anyway, but that gives you time to catch up on all the shows you've missed with the podcast that you can find on our, on our website, freedomofspecies.org. Thank you very much, Josh and Doug, for coming into the studio on this glorious sunny day thank you thanks kate and you can follow us on facebook and on twitter and you can email us info at freedomspecies.org so enjoy this holiday period and please extend your peace and goodwill to all beings on earth not just the human beings i'm going to leave you with robbie munis's album you're not alone see you Rescue me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.